0: Terms fly. But Miss Mattie, who was trembling very much, scouted this idea and said we owed it to society to apprehend them, and that she should certainly do her best to lay hold of them and lock them up in the garret till morning. When Lady Glenmire came, we almost felt jealous of her. Mrs. Jameson's house had really been attacked. At least there were men's footsteps to be seen on the flower borders underneath the kitchen windows, where no men should be. And Carlo had barked all through the night as if strangers were abroad. Mrs. Jameson had been awakened by Lady Glenmire, and they had rung the bell which communicated with Mr. Mulliner's room in the third storey, and when his night-capped head had appeared over the banisters in answer to the summons, they had told him of their alarm, and the reasons for it. Whereupon he retreated into his bedroom, and locked the door, for fear of draughts, as he informed them in the morning, and opened the window, and called out valiantly to say, "'If the supposed robbers would come to him, he would fight them.' but as lady glenmire observed that was but poor comfort since they would have to pass by mrs jamieson's room in her own before they could reach him and must be of a very pugnacious disposition indeed if they neglected the opportunities of robbery presented by the unguarded lore stories to go up to a garret and there force a door in order to get at the champion of the house lady glenmire after waiting and listening for some time in the drawing-room had proposed to mrs jamieson that they should go to bed but that lady said she should not feel comfortable unless she sat up and watched, and, accordingly, she packed herself warmly up on the sofa, where she was found by the housemaid, when she came into the room at six o'clock, fast asleep. But Lady Glenmire went to bed, and kept awake all night. When Miss Pole heard of this, she nodded her head in great satisfaction. She had been sure we should hear of something happening in Cranford that night, and we had heard. It was clear enough that they had first proposed to attack her house, but when they saw that she and Betty were on their guard, and had carried off the plate, they had changed their tactics and gone to Mrs. Jameson's, and no one knew what might have happened if Carlo had not barked, like a good dog as he was. Poor Carlo! His barking days were nearly over. Whether the gang who infested the neighbourhood were afraid of him, or whether they were revengeful enough, for the way in which he had baffled them on the night in question to poison him— or whether, as some among the more uneducated people thought, he died of apoplexy, brought on by too much feeding and too little exercise, at any rate it is certain that, two days after this eventful night, Carlo was found dead, with his poor legs stretched out stiff in the attitude of running, as if by such unusual exertion he could escape, the sure pursuer, death. We were all sorry for Carlo, the old familiar friend who had snapped at us for so many years, and the mysterious mode of his death made us very uncomfortable. Could Signor Brunoni be at the bottom of this? He had apparently killed a canary with only a word of command. His will seemed of deadly force. Who knew but what he might yet be lingering in the neighbourhood, willing all sorts of awful things? We whispered these fancies among ourselves in the evenings, but in the mornings our courage came back with the daylight, and in a week's time we had got over the shock of Carlo's death, all but Mrs. Jameson. She, poor thing, felt it as she had felt no event since her husband's death, indeed miss pole said that as the honourable mr jameson drank a good deal and occasioned her much uneasiness it was possible that carlo's death might be the greater affliction but there was always a tinge of cynicism in miss pole's remarks however, one thing was clear and certain. It was necessary for Mrs. Jameson to have some change of scene, and Mr. Mulliner was very impressive on this point, shaking his head whenever we inquired after his mistress, and speaking of her loss of appetite and bad nights very ominously, and with justice, too, for if she had two characteristics in her natural state of health they were a facility of eating and sleeping. If If she could neither eat nor sleep she must indeed be out of spirits and out of health." Lady Glenmire, who had evidently taken very kindly to Cranford, did not like the idea of Mrs. Jameson's going to Cheltenham, and more than once insinuated pretty plainly that it was Mr. Mulliner's doing, who had been much alarmed on the occasion of the house being attacked, and since had said, more than once, that he felt it a very responsible charge to have to defend so many women. Be that, as it might, Mrs. Jameson went to Cheltenham, escorted by Mr. Mulliner, and Lady Glenmire remained in possession of the house, her ostensible office being to take care that the maid-servants did not pick up followers. She made a very pleasant-looking dragon, and as soon as it was arranged for her to stay in Cranford, she found out that Mrs. Jamieson's visit to Cheltenham was just the best thing in the world. She had let her house in Edinburgh, and was for the time houseless, so the charge of her sister-in-law's comfortable abode was very convenient and acceptable. Miss Pole was inclined to install herself as a heroine, because of the decided steps she had taken in flying from the two men and one woman, whom she entitled that murderous gang. She described their appearance in glowing colours, and I noticed that every time she went over the story some fresh trait of villainy was added to their appearance. One was tall, he grew to be gigantic in height before we had done with him, of course he had black hair, and by and by it hung in elf-locks over his forehead and down his back. The other was short and broad, and a hump sprouted out on his shoulder before we had heard the last of him, He had red hair, which deepened into carroty, and she was almost sure he had a cast in the eye, a decided squint. As for the woman, her eyes glared, and she was masculine-looking, a perfect virago, most probably a man dressed in woman's clothes. Afterwards we heard of a beard on her chin, and a manly voice and a stride. If Miss Pole was delighted to recount the events of that afternoon to all inquirers, others were not so proud of their adventures in the robbery-line mr hodgins the surgeon had been attacked at his own door by two ruffians who were concealed in the shadow of the porch and so effectually silenced him that he was robbed in the interval between ringing his bell and the servants answering it miss pole was sure it would turn out that this robbery had been committed by her men and went the very day she heard the report to have her teeth examined and to question mr hodgins she came to us afterwards so we heard what she had heard straight and direct from the source while we were yet in the excitement and flutter of the agitation caused by the first intelligence, for the event had only occurred the night before. "'Well,' said Miss Pole, sitting down with the decision of a person who has made up her mind as to the nature of life and the world, and such people never tread lightly or seat themselves without a bump, well, Miss Matty, men will be men. Every mother's son of them wishes to be considered Samson and Solomon rolled into one, too strong ever to be beaten or discomfited too wise ever to be outwitted if you will notice they have always foreseen events though they never tell one for one's warning before events happen my father was a man and i know the sex pretty well she had talked herself out of breath and we should have been very glad to fill up the necessary pause as a chorus but we did not exactly know what to say or which man had suggested this diatribe against the sex so we only joined in generally with a grave shake of the head and a soft murmur of they are very incomprehensible certainly now only think said she there i have undergone the risk of having one of my remaining teeth drawn for one is terribly at the mercy of any surgeon-dentist and i for one always speak them fair till i've got my mouth out of their clutches and after all mr hodges is too much of a man to own that he was robbed last night not robbed exclaimed the chorus "'Don't tell me!' Miss Pole exclaimed, angry that we could be for a moment imposed upon. "'I believe he was robbed, just as Betty told me, and he is ashamed to own it, and to be sure it was very silly of him to be robbed just at his own door. I dare say he feels that such a thing won't raise him in the eyes of Cranford society, and is anxious to conceal it. But he need not have tried to impose upon me, by saying I must have heard an exaggerated count of some petty theft of a neck of mutton, which, it seems, was stolen out of the safe in his yard last week. He had the impertinence to add, he believed that it was taken by the cat. I have no doubt, if I could get at the bottom of it, it was the Irishman dressed up in woman's clothes, who came spying about my house with the story about the starving children. After we had condemned the want of candour which Mr. Hodgins had evinced, and abused men in general, taking him for the representative and type, we got round to the subject about which we had been talking when Miss Pole came in, Namely, how far, in the present disturbed state of the country, we could venture to accept an invitation which Miss Matty had received from Mrs. Forster, to come as usual and keep the anniversary of her wedding-day by drinking tea with her at five o'clock, and playing a quiet pool afterwards. Mrs. Forster had said that she asked us with some diffidence, because the roads were, she feared, very unsafe. But she suggested that perhaps one of us would not object to take the sedan— and that the others, by walking briskly, might keep up with the long trot of the chairman, and so we might all arrive safely at Oliver Place, a suburb of the town. No.